0: Welcome to Trauma Talk. Today is part two of our interview with Midwest Transplant Network Representative Jessica and Nikki. Today they'll be discussing what happens during the donation process. Nikki, could you explain the effective request process?
1: The first is the timely call when the patient meets rec- referral criteria. After the referral, we huddle. We talk about the plate of care and um, we don't change the plan of care, but we do talk with the the healthcare team about the patient, the family dynamics, and what's going on with the patient and their family. And we follow closely until the plan of clear care changes. Step three is advocating for brain death testing if the patient is a reflexive. And one of the greatest gifts that a pr- physician can give a family when a patient is presenting as brain dead is to actually do the testing and pronounce that patient for their family. That takes a lot of the decision-making responsibility off of the shoulders of the family. In a situation where it is a non brain dead patient, who the family has decided to shift to comfort care. um, Then we will have that huddle and set a plan to have the donation discussion with the family. So while step one with the imminent death referral and step two, the huddle don't change, step three is dependent on whether or not the patient is brain dead or going to be a donor after circulatory death. The, the last step is following out with the plan that we determine in huddle or re-huddling if there's a change. That also stays the same regardless of the pathway that the donor will take, either brain dead or donation after circulatory death.
0: You know, we're, st- we're through step four that prepares our family services coordinator, you know, to kind of have that conversation. And there's a lot of, again, a lot of assessment that goes into the timing of that discussion. Some of the um, statements that get made that signal that a family might be ready is if they ask for what happens next. Um, so if they're saying, okay, then now what happens? And some of that transitional language that we like to offer, if a family's asking that of the healthcare provider, we can we can offer them that there's um, there's a a team that will come and talk to you about what happens next, or we'll walk you through this process. That way, there's no mention of Midwest Transplant Network. I think if you name us, people don't understand. You know, they don't connect a donation opportunity to the name of our organization. I also think that if if we get named early on, that a family sometimes might. Think that We've heard families say that they think that a transplant would help their loved one. They get confused. So, And a lot of times we'll get feedback that staff feel like it's sneaky or that it's not being transparent. I don't see it in that way as much as I see it in giving them information as you can explain it further. So once we're there, we're able to identify who we are and what we're there for, but we're able to kind of explain the entire context of it. So, our data shows we've been tracking this as a best practice now for over 10 years, and our data shows that if we're able to meet all of these milestones, authorization for donation occurs somewhere in the mid-70% of the time versus it drops to under 50% if one of these steps is is not followed or not met. So we really think it's it's just about communicating, being there in a timely fashion, making sure that we have an accurate assessment of the dynamics and what's going on, really advocating for that, decl- of brain death, if it looks like that's what's going on, and having all of those pieces in place for a family before the
1: conversation about donation happens.
0: Could you go through the members of the team that arrive on site?
1: Absolutely. So I am the hospital services coordinator. So I coordinate for 12 specific hospitals. I am kind of the face of MTN at those particular hospitals. I don't change. I handle the education of doctors, nurses, um, the referral process. We also have mentioned the family services coordinators that take care of our families. Um, They're typically social workers or nurses, um, people of different backgrounds that are very versed in family support. And then we also have organ procurement coordinators, which are RT, or a lot of time nurse, critical care nurses, and they are the ones that come on site once the donation process has begun, and they actually manage the care of the donor in collaboration with the hospital staff.
0: And not only um, do our family services coordinators just approach for donation, they're also looking at what spiritual needs the family has, even just basic human needs. Have they had a meal? Do they have a place to stay? We had a case one time where um, a mom of a potential donor uh, traveled from out of state she was very having she was very anxious we couldn 't quite figure out what was going on, but she had to she felt like she had to leave she had to get back and it was really kind of creating a, a situation where we we weren't able to really talk with her and spend the time to go through things with her and come to find out she she needed a AA meeting she was needing to get to a meeting and she felt herself you know really struggling with that and once we were able to identify we were able to help her find you know that meeting and find that resource that she needed so it's not just about donation it's about you know funeral arrangements it's about If um, a family wants to, a lot of times we've had families that will want to take their loved one to another country after death. You know, we get involved and try to help them, connect them with resources
1: and support them throughout that whole entire process.
0: Are there any myths being a donor?
1: I think it's important that people understand that um, incarcerated uh, people can also be donors. Being incarcerated or being in jail does not prevent someone from being able to donate, um, whether they're first person registered or otherwise, Um, if they're not registered, we will also contact the next of kin and they are offered donation as well. Another myth is that previously COVID positive patients can't be donors and that also is not the case. So again, we ask that we be the one to screen them because there's so many opportunities that people are unaware of. We often hear that people think that they don't have anything to share and quite often after we assess them and their medical situation, we find that they are able to share life through donation.
0: Nikki, could you describe the phases that happen at MTN when you know you have a confirmed donor?
1: Phase one is basically the evaluation and management determining how many lives will be saved, so to speak. That can be family plan, completion of paperwork, family care, and the beginning of a medical evaluation.
0: So I think another um, important step of phase one, it's a lot of our collaboration time also. Something that we get a lot is people not knowing that we work so closely with medical examiners or coroners. So we will contact them basically on every uh, organ donation case that we are working with and just to collaborate and make sure that they have whatever they need um, to be able to complete their investigation. And we work extremely closely. I obviously with Sedgwick County, that's where we're based. We have a lot of great support over there and a great collaboration with them. And we're able to get, you know, blood samples, documentation, you know, whatever they need so we can work together and both accomplish what we've set forth to.
1: Phase two is matching donations with recipients. That's where allocation takes place. And we're basically trying to find the perfect match for our donor heroes' gifts. Again, collaboration. Our team collaborates not only with the healthcare team in the hospital where we're supporting the donor, but we're also coordinating with transplant teams of the potential recipients as well. Um, and during this time, MTN and the hospital staff collaborate together to continue the, the management of the donor patient and their care. Um, after step um, after phase two, we go into phase three, which is donation and transplantation, where we're actually giving the gift of life. Um, we're going to have final coordination. This is when we are coordinating flight plans for recipients um, surgeons. Hospital and staff are notified. Um, We have a wonderful way that we honor donors called the Honor Walk, and most of our hospitals participate in that Honor Walk. It's hospital-driven, and it is a wonderful way that we honor our donors on the way to the OR. Um, There's a lot of documentation that takes place in Phase 3 and tons of family communication. We do donor cards and memorial items and a lot of different support and memorial things for the families of the potential donor.
0: Well, and I think as, aside from even the honor walk, we in. And most of the time in the OR, we'll take a moment of silence. Depending on the type of recovery, it happens at different phases, but there's a moment of silence to honor that the life that was lived and that the life that they're giving. It, there just is the, we have the utmost respect. I know Nikki referred to our donor heroes and you know we really fully believe that that's, you know, that that's what they are. And the gift of life wouldn't happen without the generosity of the donor hero or their family.
1: And sometimes that can even just be playing um, a song that's requested in the OR from by the family. They will recover to a song of their choice. And to further connect to Purface, um, after the donation occurs, we do donation summaries for the hospital staff that was involved in donation. And we let them know where the gifts are going, um, just some basic demographics about the recipients. And we just try to connect everybody back to why we do what we do. And oftentimes that's following up after the donation has actually been made.
0: Are there any services offered to the family of the deceased? that they can reach out for. Absolutely, our aftercare program standardly is two years, but families can opt. Basically, at that two-year time frame, they can opt in to continue to receive information from us, or they can, uh, you know, kind of fall off that. A lot of times, after that couple-year period, families have a little bit more of a of a a resource identified or something that they need for support. But we have so many different opportunities for families. Nikki mentioned our secure Facebook page. That's something that only two MTNs staff have access to to be administrators of the site. But it's families, once we've verified that they're either the legal next of kin or approved by the legal next of kin to have access to that, they're able to support each other real time. A lot of times, especially with COVID, people weren't able to get out and we weren't able to have events in person. And the secure Facebook page was a way that they could communicate. We've seen on times of holidays when things aren't open, they'll you know, be exchanges back and forth. We also do a celebration of heroes. Every year in each of our sites we'll have a memorial service for um, just all of our donor heroes not just in the last year but ever We have memorial quilts so we've completed our 13th panel of a memorial quilt that the donor families are able to make a quilt square in honor of their their hero and those go lots of different places they're actually hanging in some of our meeting rooms in our office but we're also able to take them out to events to raise awareness they're often at the celebration of heroes all of the different things that we do to raise awareness about donation. We just had our legacy walk. So that's currently in the Kansas City area. That was just last weekend. But once a year we have what we call a legacy walk. Just people walk in memory of their loved ones or raising awareness for donation in general. And for Uh, people that aren't able to make the trip to Kansas City. COVID inspired a virtual walk. So we're able now to include that as part of our plan moving forward as well. Not to mention we have a, a newsletter called Serenity that the families get those at regular quarterly intervals. We send a card out at six months, kind of a thinking of you. We also include our survey. Nikki mentioned getting feedback from the population we serve and our donor families are a big population. So we look at that feedback and how we can improve to better
1: serve them. Uh, So every year we celebrate National Donate Life Month in April and all of our large hospitals throughout the country and even some of our rural hospitals go above and beyond to raise awareness for donation. Um, Here at Wesley Medical Center, one of the things that we do yearly to honor the donors, both organ tissue and eye donors, is we do a flag raising ceremony in April and we read the first names of all of the donors that we had in that particular year. Um, Another thing, that our aftercare program does that we get a lot of questions about is um, do the donors and recipient families ever get to meet? And we do have a department that facilitates that. There are some conditions that need to be met. Um, Again, we want to be sensitive to the feelings of both the donor families and the recipient families. There are just a few conditions. If each party writes to each other at least once anonymously and both parties have expressed a desire to exchange contact information with one another and are willing to sign a notarized consent and release forms to MTN, then we will facilitate those families meeting each other. And we mentioned the legacy walk just very recently. And at every legacy walk, there's often donor families that are meeting recipient families. And that connection is extremely emotional and definitely speaks to um, our connect to purpose.
0: Jessica and Nikki, thank you for being on the show.
1: Jessica and Nikki, thanks for being on the show.
0: If our listeners have any questions for MTN, where could they reach you?